We began last week in this journey in prophetic scripture. We are using the book of Revelation as our base, as our starting point, and uh, we are going to go to other prophecies as we come to gaps in the Revelation. And I recognize that that is a daunting task, and it will take us a little while, at least halfway through the tribulation, to get to the end of it. But I hope that it will be encouraging and interesting to you. Good to see Brother Billy and Sister Vicky, by the way. Didn't know they were coming in town, but always a delight to see them. I said last week that, that the two books that Satan attacks most is the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. Because in Genesis, his doom is announced, and in Revelation, it is carried out. It's interesting to me, I, I, I just noticed this today, that there is no devil in the first two chapters of the Bible, and there is no devil in the last two chapters of the Bible. And it's encouraging to compare Genesis and Revelation and see the consummation of all things. And what has begun in, Jan in Genesis is finished in Revelation. Somebody said the Revelation is the golden clasp that ties the whole Bible together. So in Genesis, you have the creation of the first heaven and earth. In Revelation, you have the creation of the new heaven and earth. In Genesis, you have the first Adam reigning on earth. In Revelation, you have the last Adam reigning over the universe. In Genesis, you have a bride that is brought to the first Adam. In Revelation, you have a bride, which is the church brought to the last Adam. In Genesis, the earth is cursed and sin and death is introduced. But in Revelation, there is no more curse, there is no more sin, there is no more death. The book of Revelation was written as correspondence to seven local churches in Asia Minor. You find that in verse 11. What thou seest write in the book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. More will be said about these churches when we get to chapter 2 and chapter 3. But these are seven first century congregations that knew John on a first name basis. The only introduction that he needs to them is I, John. They would know exactly what John that was writing to them. There were other churches at that time in Asia Minor, Troas, Hierapolis is mentioned in Colossians, but these are chosen as representative churches and the message to each was the message to all. What Christ says to one church, he says to all the churches and we'll deal with that when we get to it. So this evening, Revelation chapter one, I'm picking the text up in verse number four. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace be to you in peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. 
They also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him even so, amen. So we know John is not a Baptist because twice he has said amen. He says in verse eight, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. In the opening line, John sends greetings to the churches from the Godhead. And the message that he gives them would be very reassuring to them in a hostile world, grace be unto you and peace. Now you already know that that is a common greeting. In fact, it's found 16 times in the epistles. And I would have you to know that every time that it is mentioned, grace always precedes peace. It is never peace and grace. It is always grace and peace because peace is not possible outside of the grace of God. But though grace and peace were a common greeting in Christian correspondence, it does seem a little bit out of place in a book like Revelation. Because this is a book more about woe and judgment than it is about grace and peace. Grace and peace are found in every dispensation. But in the book of Revelation, the church age as we know it is finished and the tribulation is ushered in and it's woe and judgment, it's war and woe, it's not, it's not grace and peace. So it seems a little bit out of place. But I just thought how that there are some things that cannot be disturbed by the storm. And chief among them is the peace that God puts in our heart and the grace that he gives us to live day by day. So in the book of Revelation, seals are broken and trumpets are blown and vials are poured out and they're all symbols of God's wrath and God's judgment. But for the believer, in the midst of all of that, grace be unto you and peace. peace. That's a wonderful greeting, isn't it? Well, in this greeting here, there are three realities that will bring that grace and peace to our hearts in troubling times. I want you to notice, first of all, that to have that grace and peace, you should appreciate the person of the Godhead. Appreciate the person of the Godhead. Now, when we come to Revelation, we are looking for information on the end time. Tell me when the rapture is going to take place. What about the scorpions coming out of the pit? We, we're looking for details on, on, on what's going to happen in the and we will get to that, but John does not begin with prophecy. It is a prophetic book for sure. But instead, John begins with a description of the Godhead. Because it is not events that dominate the book, it is a person that dominates the book. There are dark days that lie ahead for the immediate recipients of this letter. The history of the church is gonna be marked by persecutions and apostasy and wicked men and times are gonna abound. But God, before all of that happens, John would have you to know that there is a God in heaven and he is in control of the future. No matter how dark the storm clouds grow, don't lose sight of the fact that God is in control. Now, without going into a discourse on the Trinity, we don't have 
time to do that tonight. But John looks at the three persons of the Godhead in this statement. First of all, this is what I, the Father, and the words I'm going to use for the Father is transcendent and imminent. Look at verse 4 again. Grace be unto you in peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. Theologians describe transcendence as God being outside of his creation. And eminence is God being involved in his creation. Transcendence is that God transcends. He rises above his creation. He's not bound by time or space. And eminence is that he's not a distant and he's not a detached deity way out there somewhere, but he is intimately involved in the daily operations of, of the world. Transcendent and eminent. He says, first of all, from him which is. Now that sounds incomplete to me because I want to say is what? Where's the direct object? I have a subject, I have a verb. They told me in the grammar that I need to have a direct object, all right? I don't have a direct object, I don't have a description. But John's not dealing with the attributes of God, he's dealing with the existence of God. There's no qualification, there is no description. So he's talking about, here, here's a theological term for you. Can, can we think for a minute tonight? Can we do that? The self-existence and the self-sufficiency of God. And here's what I just said. God simply and incomparably is. And his life is not contingent upon anything else. There is no cause prior to God. Everything that God is, he is in himself. In, in our world of existence, every living thing depends upon another living thing for survival. Yeah. The body needs air. Creatures need food. Plants need water. Every living thing depends on something else. But need is not a word that can be attributed to God. A.W. Tozer said that need is a creature word, cannot be spoken of the creator. God has a voluntary relationship to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relationship to anything that he has made. If every person on the earth was to go blind tomorrow, it would not dim the shining of the stars or the shining of the sun because though we are dependent upon it for light, it is not dependent upon us. If every man tomorrow declared that he was an atheist, it would not affect God at all. For you to believe in him doesn't add anything to him. For you to reject him doesn't take anything away from him. Self-existent and self-sufficient. From him which is and which was. God does not live in the realm of time, but he uses the language of time to accommodate himself to our understanding. And to say that God was, to say that God was, is to say that God is right now what he always has been. You see, we speak of the past tense as in something in the past, but it is no longer. But that's not how it refers to God. When it refers to God, he has always been what he is right now. God is, and there never was a time when he was not. 
God never came into existence. He has no beginning. He was not created. He did not evolve over the ages into what he has become right now. There has never been a time when God was not everything that he is right now and always will be. Which is and which was and which is to come. God exists in the beginning and the ending of time and that simultaneously. There are some creatures that have a beginning and will have an end. Animals, plants. There are some creatures that have a beginning and won't have an end. Angels, the souls of men. But God, God stands alone as having neither beginning nor ending. And so he speaks of the Father, transcendent and imminent. And then the second person of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. And the two words I would use to define him is perfect and omnipotent. Look at the last phrase of verse four. And from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Now, I'm not gonna bother tonight to give you the opposing views as to what these seven spirits are. I will just give you the correct view, all right? The seven spirits is a reference to the one Holy Spirit. That's who it's talking about. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I believe that. First of all, you'll notice that the word spirits is capitalized. Every time that it is capitalized in the scripture, it speaks of the Holy Spirit. Then secondly, secondly, because some say that it's angels, seven angels, and, and again, I, I won't go into the reasons why they say that, but if you'll notice that the Holy Spirit, these seven spirits are mentioned between the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, in verse number five. So we are talking about the Godhead in this text, all right? So it would not be appropriate to put angels between the Father and the Son. So that wouldn't work. And then the third reason is because it is grace and peace that comes from the Father and the seven spirits and Jesus Christ. Grace and peace don't come from angels. So, so, so to make them angels, it don't, it don't fit at all. And when John speaks of seven spirits, he's suggesting, not suggesting that there are seven different spirits. The Holy Spirit is always singular, there's only one, but it's a reference to the complete work of the Holy Spirit upon the earth. Seven is the number of completion. We'll see that a whole bunch of times as we go through the book. So it's referring to the perfection, the completeness of his work. Yeah. If you want to reference Zechariah 4, Isaiah chapter 11, that's in the complete notes. I don't have time to get there tonight. And then notice the third person of the Trinity is verse number five, the Son. The words that we use is faithful and majestic. Now, for some reason, for some reason, John reverses the order. We always speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? But for some reason, John reverses it. He has Father, Holy Spirit, and the Son. And when you figure out why he did that, you come and tell me. And I'll add that to my notes. But I don't know why he did that. But it's interesting that when he gets to Jesus, when he gets to Jesus, he has to have what the black preacher called a praise break. He just had to step back and just, just shout just a little bit, huh? Yeah. He, he praises him for who he is. There's 15 different titles for the Lord Jesus of Revelation and he gives you three of them here. 
faithful witness, first begotten of the dead, and prince of the kings of the earth. The faithful witness that references his past earthly ministry in which he was faithful to declare the, the witness of the Father. First begotten of the dead, that refers to his resurrection and then prince of the, peace, uh, prince of the kings of the earth. That's his future role as, as, as conqueror of the kings and nations of the earth. So break it down. From Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. A witness is somebody who gives a testimony. He is called to the stand to testify what he knows, what he has seen, what he has heard, his firsthand knowledge. And Jesus came to testify to witness of the Father. He told Pilate, to this end I was born, for this cause came I into this world to bear witness of the truth. He's a faithful witness. Now, now it's not important to be a witness, but you've got to be a faithful witness. Can, can you be relied upon to tell the truth? You see, a witness's testimony is only reliable as his character. If he perjures himself or if he is caught in a lie, the, 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 uh, the attorney will cross-examine him and try to twist him up and try to talk about some speeding ticket he had 35 years ago or something to, try to, to, to cast shade upon his character. But he's the faithful witness, the faithful witness. Later on, he's called the faithful and true witness. There is nobody's testimony that was more scrutinized than his testimony, but his critics and his foes, they, they, they couldn't pin anything on him. He's the faithful witness. And then notice this phrase, the first begotten of the dead. First begotten of the dead. You find the phrase firstborn in the Bible. That is a term of position and Privilege. Do not think firstborn means the first one born. It is not the same. Firstborn was a Jewish position of privilege in the family. The firstborn had rights that, that the other siblings, the other sons did not have. But it's not always because he is the oldest. Ishmael. Ishmael was born first. But Abraham's inheritance went to Isaac. Esau was the firstborn. But the blessing went to Jacob. Jacob blessed Ephraim over Manasseh. Manasseh was the oldest, or Ephraim, or Manasseh was the oldest. And, and so, so, so firstborn doesn't mean the first one born. It's, it's, it's a term of favor. It's a term of privilege. God called Israel the firstborn, his firstborn, his firstborn. And so Christ is the firstborn, the first begotten of the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. You'll find that he's the firstborn over creation. He's the firstborn over the church. He's the firstborn over the cemetery. The first begotten from the dead. The reason why he's the preeminent one from the dead is because he's the only one that can get up by his own power. There's people in the Bible that are raised from the dead, but not by their own power. The reason why he is preeminent over all of those who are raised from the dead, because he's the only one to ever get up and never to go back down again. Raised from the dead and never to die again. The reason why he is preeminent over the grave is because not only does he have power to raise himself, not only is he the only one never going to die again, but he also has power to raise others. He's the first begotten from the dead. And then notice the phrase in the prince of the kings of the earth. 
Everything in Revelation is, is moving toward that one event. When the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever. It's all moving toward that. And that future kingship of Christ is presented through the entire Bible, but the Revelation is the only book where you see Christ actually reigning on this earth. And so John says he is to be praised for who he is. But then the last part of verse five, he is to be praised for what he has done. And in one statement, John gives us the doctrine of the atonement. Now the doctrine of the atonement is a wonderful, wonderful doctrine, but it's too heavy on a Wednesday night. I don't think that you can handle it. And here, here's the thing about theology, all right? Here, here's the thing about it. I, I love to study theology, but theology is not to be in a book for a theologian to take a test on and get a grade. That's not the purpose of theology. Theology has to get off of the pages of a book and it has to get in your heart. As long as it's in a book, it is dormant and it is helpless, but it ever gets in your heart, you can't help but shout. So look what he's done. Unto him that loved us. Now whenever I'm studying, I always like to study what the critic says just to see what the other side says about it. It's amazing to me. And here's what happens. One Bible denier writes, corrects the Bible and then, then a whole bunch of people, they just copy what he said. So, so here's, here's the standard take on that phrase, unto him that loved us. The proper, the correct Greek translation should be unto him that loves us. Loves us, present tense, because on it the love of Christ constant. It's not just something he did in the past. He still loves us. So it should read unto him that loves us, not him that loved us. But the truth of the matter is, is that he loved us before he washed us. The love came before the washing. Whenever you find love and redemption in the same passage, love always comes first. To him that loved us. And then washed us from our sins in his own blood. Again, commentators are near unanimous in saying that washed should be changed to loosed. Loosed, it ought to be loosed. Well, I'll tell you what I think about that. I like the word washed. That's what I like. I like the word washed. Loosed, by the way, is a judicial word. Loosed. John never refers to the atonement in judicial terms. Paul does, but John does not. He does talk a lot about cleansing. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can you imagine if we got up on Sunday morning and saying, saying have you been to Jesus for the cleansing blood? Are you loosed in the blood of the lamb? Can you imagine that? I just like the word wash. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. He has not only remedied our present condition in washing us from our sins, but he has elevated us to a heavenly position in the future as kings and priests. Being a king speaks of our association with him. Being a priest speaks of our access to him. Being a priest means that I am righteous before him. Being a king means that I will reign with him. Kings and priests. 
So if you're going to have grace and peace in troubling times, you need to appreciate the person of the Godhead. Don't come to Revelation just to see what's going to happen in the tribulation. Come to Revelation and learn about your God. It's in the second thing. If you're going to have grace and peace in these troubling times, you need to anticipate the promise of the Godhead. Look at verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him, even so amen. Whenever you are writing a book or telling a story, there always has to be an element of suspense, an element of surprise. There has to be a hook. You got to get your reader to keep reading. So for that reason, you don't put your climax at the beginning of the book. You put the climax at the end of the book. If the hero is going to win, if the villain is going to die, then he needs to do so in the last chapter. Because if you give it all away in the first chapter, then what's the point in reading the rest of the book? Right? Right? You got to put it at the end. You hook them in and just keep them going and keep turning the page until they get to the end. Well, John's given this vision, and I don't know if John writes this as he's given the vision or if Jesus shows him the whole thing and he writes down and sits down and writes it all from beginning to end. But at the beginning, he knows how it's going to end. But don't give it away, John. Hook them. Keep them reading. If you let the cat out of the bag right now, well, they might not finish the book. But it's kind of hard to keep it in when you know what's coming. And he couldn't. He just couldn't help himself. Behold, he cometh. It's the great doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Seven times in the book of Revelation. Seven's going to show up a whole lot of times. Seven times Christ is coming. Everything in the book points toward that one time when he is coming. Notice in verse number seven, the coming of the king. There is no doctrine that is stated more clearly in your Bible than that Jesus Christ is coming again. Somebody said that the second coming is mentioned 1,845 times in the Bible. That is mentioned in 23 of 27 New Testament books of the 46 Old Testament prophets, both written and oral, 36 of them mentioned the second coming. For every prophecy of the first coming in the Old Testament, there's eight prophecies of the second coming. The second coming is the climax. It is the consummation of human history and nothing could be more clear. John says his coming and be visible. Behold, he cometh with clouds. And I think when John wrote that, I think he's thinking about the time when he was standing on the Mount of Olives and him and those disciples watched. And while they behold, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. You remember that? And then two men appeared and said, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him going. In like manner, he left on a cloud and he's coming back on a cloud. Now, 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 now clouds are always associated with something bad, right? 
clouds of doubt and clouds of depression and, and clouds are always negative, always negative. But it's interesting when you study the Bible that clouds, clouds in the Bible usually indicate something positive. They are not negative, they are positive in the Bible. There was a cloud that led the children of Israel by day, that led them through the wilderness. There was a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. There was a cloud when Moses was given the law. A cloud in the Bible is not negative it is positive and we sing the song the unclouded day but I'm telling you he's coming back on a cloudy day not an uncloudy day so when you see a cloud you see a cloud that could be the cloud he's coming back on behold he comes with clouds and every eye shall see him the first time he is veiled in humanity Though he is totally God and totally man, they did not recognize him for who he is. And by the end of his earthly ministry, only a few people, only a handful of people, recognized his deity. A few times his deity would shine forth through that veil of humanity, but for the most part, it was a mystery. It was a mystery as to who he is. But I want to tell you that the next time he comes, it will not be a mystery, it'll be a manifestation. The veil would be pulled away and this godless world will recognize the coming of the Son coming in his glory and his majesty. And I, wanna, I would love to be here and turn on CNN and Fox News trying to explain what's coming. They'll see him and this time the whole world will know who he is. Coming in clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him it's a reference to the nation of Israel. John's the only gospel writer that talks about that soldier that pierces his side with a spear and out came blood and water. Thomas, Thomas said, I'll not believe until I see the print, his nails in his hands. I won't believe. And Israel won't believe until they see the one whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12 and verse 10. His coming will be visible. His coming will be vengeful. All kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. The second coming is our blessed hope. It is not the hope of the world. For those of us who are saved and returning with the Lord, this is a day of victory. But for those who are lost, it will be a day of vengeance. He's coming. He's coming. So in verse 7, he speaks of the coming of the king. In verse 8, he talks to the king who is coming. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. John has introduced the Lord, now Jesus introduces himself. Verse number eight is the first direct words of the Lord Jesus in this book. I'm running through a whole lot of stuff I'm not stopping to tell you. There are seven I am's in the gospel. There are seven I am's in the book of Revelation. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord. Alpha and Omega. You know that Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. That's also the two letters in the Greek alphabet that I know, is Alpha and Omega. I also know Chi Sigma Delta, because I used to belong to a, a collegian called Chi Sigma Delta. Now, those are Greek letters as well, so I know five. 
It's interesting that the alphabet in any language is the vehicle in which all the accumulated wisdom of the world resides. I have thousands of books in my library, and every one of them consists of 26 letters, and that's all. 26. And in 26 letters is all the wisdom, all the knowledge of the world. So when Jesus says that he is the first letter and the last letter of the alphabet, he is saying that I am the source of all knowledge and wisdom of the world. And who were hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Colossians 2 and verse number 3. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending. If we was in English, we'd say he's the A and the Z. He's the A through the Z. He's everything in between is what he is. And then he says, which is and which was and which is to come. And we've already seen that. The first time it spoke of the Father. And this time it speaks of the Son and the Almighty. Almighty. January 30th, 1933, Adolf Hitler established the Third Reich. He said it will last for a thousand years. A thousand years. It will last for a grand total of 148 months. But Jesus Christ is coming back. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And it's going to run for a millennium, a thousand years. A thousand years. And when it's finished, it's not destroyed by some opposing enemy. No. He'll end it and bring in an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. No matter how dark this world, don't lose sight of the fact that he is coming. The first time he came to a cross, the second time he comes to a coronation. The first time he came to hang on a tree, the next time he's coming to sit on a throne. The first time he came, he stood before Pilate to be judged. The next time he comes, Pilate's going to stand before him to be judged. The first time he came, it was to shame. The second time he comes, it'll be in splendor. The first time he came, it was to redeem us. The second time he comes, it'll be to reign over us. He's coming. If you want grace and peace in these dark days, you need to appreciate the person of the Godhead and anticipate the promise of the Godhead. But if you want grace and peace in these times, you need to ascribe praise to the Godhead. Look at verse 6. Hath made his kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because sometimes what is in the heart just touches the lips. And you can't help but just say, Amen. But as you, I'll give you this and I'll be done. As you grow and you learn and you grow in your love for the Lord, your praise will grow as well. Your doxology should not get quieter, it should get louder. It should not get shorter, it should get longer. It should be more frequent. It should be more spontaneous. We ought to be praising him more, not praising him less. Do you not agree with that? There's four doxologies in the book of Revelation. And every one of them grows from the, from the previous one. Look at verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That's two things, glory and dominion. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 9. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, 
The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. That's three. Look at chapter five. Chapter five and verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I say, blessing and honor and glory and power. That's four. It's growing, ain't it? I wish I had time to tell you why there's four in chapter five. We'll save it for when we get there. Look at chapter seven. Chapter seven and verse 11. All the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces uh, on their faces and worshiped God saying amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever. Amen. That seven is growing. The more that is revealed of the glorified Christ, the angels and the 12, 420 elders and the living creatures, it just grows and it crescendos more and more and more. And by the way, that's how it ought to do in our heart as well. We see more of the Lord and we learn more of the Lord and we understand more of the Lord. Our doxologies ought to grow and increase until it includes all the notes and all the scales and all the tones that we can come up with. It ought to, it ought to grow. And one day when we get to heaven and we are unfettered no more in this human body and we're able to praise him, our song will echo and reverberate across the universe. So in these verses, grace and peace be unto you. Glory and dominion be unto him. To have grace and peace in this 